can I, I don't know if you guys get the chance, you know, as you sit in the congregation on Sunday and go through the services to uh, just really get your finger on the pulse of just everything that God is doing around here. But, I mean, I will just tell you, we, we have so much life transformation happening in this church right now. And then this series that we've been going through on marriage, I can't even tell you the number of emails we're getting. The counselors have been up front and coming back and just telling us, Lynn, you don't, you don't get it. There, there were divorce papers on the counter, and they, they just have turned this thing around. And, guys, we're just, we're in a season of favor. I mean, we're in a, we're in a moment where God is just blessing our socks off and give, yeah, and... Um, you know, and I, here's what you need to hear. I don't, I don't say that in any, in any sense to brag. I, I think when God's favor is there, it brings responsibility. It brings responsibility to steward the lives that God's brought into our congregation well and to help them grow in their walk in Jesus Christ. And man, uh, I just think it's an amazing, amazing and super fun season for us as a church. And then I think all of you guys are aware and know that we're in the midst of a building program that's going on right now. And if you get a chance and kind of head to that side of the buildings, uh, you'll see there's uh, pipes coming up out of the ground right now. And it's just super fun. I think we're nine and a half months from occupying those buildings on that side. And uh, just, yeah, super, super exciting. Uh, here's something, though, that I want you to be in prayer about. I think I mentioned this a little bit last week. Uh, we've got the funding basically for those buildings uh, that are going up, but the, we're building in two phases. Uh, we're building those buildings so that when all the classrooms on this side for the adults get knocked out to expand this room and all of the early childhood uh, rooms on this side get knocked out to, again to expand this room, that people have a place to go. You've got, they've got to have a place to land while we're expanding this building. So it's in two phases. We're building the buildings that we need so that uh, they're there, and then we'll come back and knock these walls out, build this building out. And so we've got the money, and it's all in, you know, there for that side where we're getting tight right now, where it's uh, coming and crimping, is the money to expand this particular facility, this building, which at the end of the day, that's the point. I mean, if you've been here at our 9 o'clock service or at our 10.30 service and even sometimes at our 11.55 service, you've watched us go into overflow. And we are, we are just growing. We're, I think we're 700 people up right now from where we were a year ago this same time. And it just, there doesn't seem to be a lot of end in sight. So I say all of that for this purpose. Um, we would not be tight and there wouldn't be any hesitation on funding the whole thing if our purple chair giving was, was where it needs to be. Uh, but we're only... We're only receiving right now in our purple chair about 60% of what we pledged. And uh, so we're going to have to have a conversation about that in the next few weeks just to say, guys, if you pledged, would you, could you? And then we're going to have to invite some people who haven't had the opportunity to pledge or didn't feel like they could do it at the time to say, would you step into the gap? Would you, would you help us do this thing? And I say this to you guys because you guys are frontliners, and, and I need you to be in prayer. I need you to say, God, would you just call, you know, Scripture talks about calling labors to the harvest, and would you just call your people in this moment of such favor and such blessing, don't let us come up short on what you were giving us to do. And so, would you just begin to pray for the other people who sit in this room um, that they would step up and do what they need to do in, in order to help us move forward and do it. And then I'm just going to encourage you, I'll just say it out loud, and you know, you can get mad if you want, but… If, if you and I won't do it, then we have no right to ask anybody else to do it. And so I'll just encourage you to examine your own hearts and your own commitments to what God is doing around here and just say, hey, am I being faithful in my support uh, physically as I volunteer and then financially as I give? Am I being faithful to what God has trusted our church with and me with as being part of it? So here's what I want us to do. I want us to take a moment tonight and just pray about that. Just pray that in the next few weeks God would just reverse this and that we would be, just be right back on track again as a church. We're going into a series called Dangerous Church, and the heart of it is to be, what, would it, what if we were the church that Jesus always dreamed the church to be? So I want us to pray about that. So here's what I want us to do. I'd like for you just to stand up where you're at. We'll pray together. I'm not going to ask you to hold hands. I know that weird some of the men out in the room. Uh, we, won't, we won't do that, uh, but I do want us to pray. Dearest Heavenly Father, we… Uh, we just come before you in this moment, and God, again, we want to declare out loud and say out loud that what's happening in this place is you. It's not us, it's you. 
And we are so overwhelmed and blessed by the favor that you've given, by the number of lives that you have brought into this place and transformed uh, by your power, and that you would trust us with those lives, that you would give them for us to steward and to shepherd. And God, this, this building thing that we're doing right now has nothing to do uh, with any sort of glory for us. It's not about big buildings. It's about having room to hold uh, the people that you've given us to be responsible for. And so, God, I just ask, would you ignite the hearts of our people? Would you pour upon us just a spirit of generosity that says, if that's what God's doing, I want my part in it. I want to own part of what God is doing in my church and in my community and my family, and would, that we would just lock arms uh, in this moment. And I pray this in your precious name. Amen. Okay, we're diving back into Romans. Uh, this is a really interesting juncture that we're at right now. Remember I told you uh, when we started uh, a couple weeks ago that the book of Romans is an incredible, almost legal brief. As a matter of fact, many, many law schools actually use the opening chapters of the book of Romans to teach young lawyers how to prepare a prosecution. And, it, and we're now getting into that portion of what Paul is about to do. And a matter of fact, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to watch, we're going to see that Paul is basically going to convict. He's going to indict and convict three different groups of people. And it's going to be very interesting to watch how he does this. And I'm going to ask you tonight as we go through, we're going to go through the first group of people. And as we do that, and as we unpack these passages, who is he indicting tonight? Who is he bringing to trial uh, tonight? And we're going to leave tonight and say, you know, that particular group of people is just guilty. There's just no doubt about it. Uh, they've been weighed in the balances, and they're going to be found wanting tonight. The other thing I just want to say out loud real quick, too, is, is that part of this room is, is that we're just going to teach Scripture straight through as it falls, which means it's very, very likely on any given night you're going to hear something that you go, man, that is not what my Sunday school teacher taught me. That's not what my grandma told me about the Scriptures. And that's fine. That's perfectly okay. We've all had that moment, and you're going to have that moment over and over again in your Christian walk. My challenge to you is, is that if we get to one of those moments tonight or next week or the next week, that rather than getting frustrated, that you would take that moment to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to study a little deeper. I'm going to make sure that what I understand Scripture to say is absolutely accurate. The other part is, uh, you may just look, find something that you look at and you go, I just don't even like that. I wish God had never put that in the Bible. And that's good. That's fine for you to do. I'm just going to suggest to you that any time you disagree with God in the Bible, take a guess who's wrong. Okay? Just, just going to leave it at that. Okay? And I get it. I get that there are some of us in the room and you haven't journeyed long enough to get to that conclusion. Uh, you're looking at a guy who's already argued with God and gotten myself worn out, and I, I just have given in and said, God, I, you're probably right. And uh, uh, we'll, we'll stick with that. Okay, so here we go. It's Romans chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 18. And again, uh, Paul is now going to build a case for conviction. And, and as we do this, I want you to keep asking in the back of your mind, what is the group of people that Paul is trying tonight? Well, who has he put on trial tonight? And he's moving toward conviction. So let's go back to verse 18. That's kind of around the area of where we stopped last time. And it simply says this, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. So we said last time, wrath is a big word. And I don't think Paul chooses this word lightly. He's trying to say to you and me, God is pretty ticked off. God is deeply frustrated. This is a big deal to God. And this group of people, whoever they are, are absolutely on the wrong side of the argument with God. And he's angry. The wrath of God is revealed. Now, when you think of wrath, I don't know about you, but the next thing I think about is judgment. See, there's no way you're going to get God that frustrated and not at some point end up with a spanking. Somewhere God's going to put you over his knee when you get to the level with him that it says the wrath of God uh, has been revealed. And that's where this particular group of people is headed. They're headed directly for a spanking. Okay. <clears throat> the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and the wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. 
Do we have the uh, microphone runner tonight? Yes, we do? Okay, all right. So remember, if you've got questions, feel free to ask the questions. You can do that. Uh, does anyone in the room remember what we said suppress was about last time? Anybody remember that? Yes, no, maybe? Okay, good. No one remembers. That's great. All right. So suppressing is simply this. It's that moment when I go, okay, you're probably right. I, I, I'm, I'm probably wrong. But I just don't want to think about it. I don't want to deal with that. And so I'm going to push that out of the way. Don't, don't confuse me with the facts. I, I don't want to hear any more arguments. I, 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 don't, I just don't even want to deal with this. And so I'm going to push it down so that I don't have to be confronted by the truth. I choose instead to suppress it from my consciousness. And that's what's happening with this particular group of people. The Bible is saying, hey, there's truth here that they should be understanding. There's truth that absolutely ought to be obvious to them. And rather than dealing with the truth as it lies, they're more inclined to say, hey, if I deal with that, I'm going to be convicted. If I, if I actually admit that, then I'm going to be found guilty. And so instead, I'm going to push it away. You remember we talked a little bit last week about this idea that the vast, vast, vast majority of people who become atheists don't become atheists because they've done some deep philosophical or scientific study. The vast, 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 vast majority of people who become atheists become atheists because they're living their life in sin. And rather than admit that God is there, because if I admitted that God was there, then I would know that I was accountable for my behavior. I'd know that somebody was keeping tabs. And so it's much more convenient to suppress that and just claim, you know, I don't think I believe in a God. Because then my disobedient actions don't look so illogical. Okay? All right. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress uh, and the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. So you get the passage. The passage says, hey, wait, 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 wait. If, if you were simply to stop and be honest, if, if you were to just wipe the slate of your mind clean and say, I'm just going to stop and consider this for a minute. Is it, is it reasonable, is it viable to believe in a God, or is it unreasonable and, and mindless to believe in a God? But I'm just going to start from a neutral position and take this through logically in my mind. <clears throat> Verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them, he's saying that this ought to be an obvious thing to them if you really stop to consider it, because God has made it plain. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world... God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse for not believing that there's a God. Okay, so here's, here's the argument that Paul is giving. He's saying, look, if, if you just even stopped for a moment and, and were fair to the discussion and just began to say, hey, wait a minute, based on what I see in creation, based on a universe that is unspeakably big, and guys, you realize that the more intelligent we get and the better we get at science, the more overwhelming what has been created becomes. The vastness of the universe, the microscopic minuteness of what goes on with inside of our bodies. And you go, wow, wow. To stop and see the sun rise every single day and to know that I didn't cause that, I didn't make the sun, and nobody that I know made the sun. To stop and think about uh, how plants uh, come out of the ground and come forth and give a, a crop and then you take the seed from that and replant it again and you go, well, who thought of that? Who came up with that idea? Because I didn't come up with that idea, and nobody I know came up with that idea. The idea that our uh, bodies have white blood cells uh, in them that fend off disease. I mean, what human invented that for ourselves? What human said, I'll tell you what we need. We need a disease-fighting uh, cell within our body that would take care of that for us. And Paul comes back and says, you know, if you really, really stop and think about it, <clears throat> 
just looking at creation would begin to say to you and me that there has to be someone apart from you and me that's responsible for everything that I'm seeing and experiencing. Matter of fact, one of the basic uh, scientific premises is simply this, is a scientific truth. For every cause, there is an effect, which also works in reverse. For every effect I see, there must have been a cause. And when you and I look at a universe and say, nobody that I know or nobody that I know has ever existed is capable of causing what I'm seeing or planning what I'm experiencing, then the only logical conclusion is that there must be someone beyond my human experience who is the cause for the effect that I'm experiencing. And Paul says, if you were just being honest, this would be obvious to everyone who truly stopped and thought about it. So what are the things that you and I should know about God just by simply looking at the universe? Thank you. I've been sick for like the last three days, so that's it's taking the toll. So we'll run the mic. What, what, what should I know about God just by looking at the universe? What do we think? Anyone want to guess? Come on, Paul said it's obvious. Okay, so let's get a mic down here. So the first word you used was powerful. Why would I come to the conclusion that he's powerful? By based on by looking at creation. Okay, so I don't, I don't necessarily know that part, though, without Scripture, right? So what do I know, though, just by, in other words, if I'm a heathen, if I'm a heathen who has no consciousness of God and has never seen a Bible, see, that's, Paul is saying, hey, creation should have told us this, not scriptures, creation. So I know he's powerful, but why would I know he's powerful? He's bigger than me. And he's got to be more powerful than me, right? When you look at all of the natural forces, gravity, everything, if anything is tweaked just slightly, then the world that we know today would not exist. Life would not exist. Okay. And everything has been held in place through something, that original cause which caused everything to come into, into existence. Okay. All right. So I'm agreeing with you, but when I look at that, when I look at all the systems, when I look at the biospheres and I look and say, okay, so the, the, elk, the wolf eats the elk, but then the elk deteriorates and he becomes fertilizer for the tree that grows up and has the acorn and it falls to the ground, the little squirrel eats it, and then the wolf eats the squirrel, you know, and it just, you know, keeps going. It's really cool. When I see that, I know that somebody designed that because it's an unbelievably intricate. Here's an interesting thing. I don't know if you guys have heard this before. Charles Darwin, the, in, the, the person who first really promoted the idea of evolution, you're familiar with Charles Darwin? Charles Darwin, when challenged, said, I get it, I get it, I get it. When you look at the intricacy of the human eye, the idea that evolution could ever be responsible for such a system is mind-boggling. And he said, I still don't have an answer for that. I, I get that that seems absurd. I would argue, guys, if Charles Darwin were alive today and looking at things like DNA, he would absolutely absolve himself of his original theory. He'd walk away and say, this is, this is absolutely cataclysmically impossible through the idea of randomness on the deal. Because when you see design, design requires what? A designer. So let me see if this helps a little bit. If you, if, if you were stranded in the middle of the desert with me, <clears throat> and uh, we're walking through the desert, and we're trying to find civilization, and I say to you, this is going to be really, really hard, because here's the deal. We're in a part of the desert that no human being has ever been here before. No human being's ever been in this desert. This is virgin desert. No plane has flown over the top of it. Uh, no car has driven through it. No caravan has crossed it. You and I are the first humans here ever. And now we've got to go find civilization. And as we're walking across the desert, uh, you happen to notice that there's something shiny uh, in the distance in the sand, and uh, you go and pick it up, and uh, it, it's a wristwatch. 
and you say to me, hey, Lynn, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought you said there'd never been a human here before. And I go, well, there hasn't. And you go, what do you, what do you mean? And I go, no, 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 no. Uh, that's a very special wristwatch. Uh, it has gotten there by random chance. You see, the, the winds blew the sands together, and the sun got really hot, and they crystallized, and they formed the, the, the glass on the front of the watch. And it just so happened over, it took millions of years and lots of chances, every one of those gears that's perfectly fashioned inside that watch and keep perfect time, uh, they just by random chance began to form out of the minerals that were there in the sand. And then, you know, uh, probably, you know, some sort of a rat or something crawled by, just happened to die on top of the watch, and that turned into the watch band. And uh, <laughs> it's random chance uh, that there's a watch. You go, Lynn, it's ticking. And I go, I know, isn't that cool? You know, you wait enough time, uh, anything can happen. And you go, Lynn, 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 it says Rolex on the top. I know, I know. Isn't that amazing? It's even spelled correctly. Wow. <laughs> and the reason you're laughing is because you and I know that when you run into design, it is only reasonable, it's only logical to then say there must be a designer. Do you realize the most, symptom, the most simple system within your body is more complex than that watch? And yet we have bought into this idea that it came about, about with randomness, and Paul says just the opposite. Paul says, are you kidding me? If you would just be honest with the information, when you would see the intricacy of creation, you would have to believe in a designer. You'd have to believe in somebody, and we said it out loud, who is smart. And matter of fact, you'd have to believe in someone who's smarter than you because you couldn't have designed what you're experiencing right now. Does that make sense? I, I, I couldn't have designed it, so that person had to have had greater intellect than me. Uh, we said already that they had to be more powerful than me. I, I, I don't know about you. I don't have the power to put the sun in place. I don't have the power to call mountains forth from the crust of the earth. I don't have that power. So somebody with more power than me uh, had to do that. And then I'm going to suggest somebody who's probably bigger than me. Because when we start measuring out how far the planets are and how long, it, how many light years it takes to get to the first planet, I mean, I can't even live long enough to get to the first planet. So I'm guessing, I mean, to the first star, I'm sorry, to the first star, I, I'm guessing that person had to be bigger than me. And Paul would say, hey, uh, if you're just honest, uh, you may not come to the Christian God, uh, you may not come to the God of the Bible, but anybody who is being fair to the facts has to believe there's somebody bigger than me, stronger than me, smarter than me, because what I'm seeing and experiencing doesn't make any sense without it. And that's the reason Paul then says creation absolutely reveals that there's a God. You cannot be fair to the information and not come to at least that basic conclusion. Okay, so we had some questions. Where were they? Okay. Were we good? All right, answered it by accident? Okay, no, it just bored you to death. Okay, all right. <laughs> Any more real quick? Any questions? Where we're at? Okay, we're good. All right, so back to the passage. Okay, so verse 20, the invisible qualities of God have made it plain that God is real. For since the creation of of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen uh, because understood from what was being made, so that men are without excuse for not believing in a God. Still not the God of the Bible yet, not the Christian version of God, but not believing in a God is illogical, Paul says. Verse 21, for although they knew God, so there's, there's something that said, I, you know, I know, I know. You know, isn't it interesting that almost every single human culture on the face of the earth believes there's something after this life? Where do we get that idea? Where, where does that concept even come from? I guarantee you there's no animal out there going, boy, you know, I wonder. You know, is there marriage in heaven? I don't know. Is there marriage in heaven? I where does that concept come from? And it comes from that divine spark. It comes from that image of God placed in our lives. 
For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor uh, gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So in other words, here's here's what Paul's saying. In this moment, they had enough information. They didn't have enough information to make a decision about Jesus yet. They didn't have enough information to believe Scripture yet, but they had enough information to believe that God was there. And in that moment, they chose to push that away, to suppress that, because if there was somebody out there that was bigger than them and stronger than them and smarter than them, then they would be accountable to that deity, to that God. And it was more convenient to push that knowledge aside and live as if God did not exist. It fit their plans better than acknowledging the reality of his existence. Verse 22, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So think, here's the moment. Uh, They should have been able to look at creation. They should have been able to say, hey, wait a minute, there's somebody bigger than me, smarter than me, stronger than me. And rather than taking that information and accepting it because it was inconvenient to how they wanted to live, they pushed it away. But isn't it interesting that in the midst of that, they made for themselves their own gods. And they choose, instead of worshiping the Creator instead to worship things that were created. So they began to worship things that look like other men. Uh, they began to worship things that look like birds and things that look like snakes, and they were bowing down to them. And you and I look at that and go, that, that's just silly. I mean, that's silly. I mean, stop and think again. If, if there really is a Creator, why are you worshiping creation? Why are you choosing to worship something that's so much smaller than him? Why would you ever worship a snake? And and, and why would you worship a bird when there's someone who made the snake and made the bird and made the man? And we do. We, We look a lot of times at what we would call primitive cultures, you know, that do that when you go off into a lot of the places that we go for missions work and you you run into cultures that have this type of animistic uh, type of worship and you go, man, this is just so crude. I mean, just how unthinking to worship a creation instead of worshiping the creator. Isn't it good that we're so much more advanced than those people? Because, I mean, let's be honest, I don't don't think anybody in this room worships snakes, right? I mean, anybody a snake worshiper or a bird worshiper? We wouldn't do that, right? You know, what's interesting to me is that I think we're even a step down into foolishness, into darkness. Because although we don't worship created things, instead we worship made things. We worship cars and houses, and jobs, and yachts. Think about, think about how silly that we worship things that people can make. See, at least these tribal people, these heathens, they were worshiping something they didn't even have the power to make that the Creator made. They were worshiping creation. You and I worship things that men make. How absurd is that? That we would worship things made by human hands and that we would devote our lives and give all of our hearts and all of our effort and all of our skill to accumulating those things because those are the things that we really care about. Those are the things that we worship, the things made by human hands. See, if, if Scripture is going to say that they were having their hearts darkened, I wonder how much darker our hearts are. If it says they were foolish to do that, I wonder how much more foolish we are to chase after and to give our lives to little brass plates on the door that say vice president, cars in the driveway with the right initials, 
that would probably be pretty foolish of us. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Verse 24, and because they did this, and what I'm going to suggest to you guys is that what we're watching here is a progression, that, that, that God is actually explaining how this group of people went step by step to actually get further away from God. So remember where we started. We started with creation, and God said, hey, wait a minute. Who I am, at least the big pieces of who I am, should be obvious to you. There's someone bigger, stronger, smarter than you. And in that moment, rather than accepting that truth, they suppressed it. They pushed it away because it was an inconvenient truth. Now they've decided they had to have a substitute God. They had to have a substitute thing to worship. So you get they're moving a step further into foolishness, a step further into darkness by doing that. And so then the Bible says at this moment that God then responds… Therefore, God gave them over in sinful desire. God said, okay, I mean, if that's the course you want to take, if, if that's how you want to live your life, okay, okay, I'll let you do it. I'll let you keep walking that path further away from me. And therefore, God gave them over to sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies one with another, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever to be praised. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. And we know that that's talking about homosexuality. That, that guys, I'm just going to say to you, and I know there's been a lot of debate, debate going on in our culture right now, Scripture, scripture doesn't debate the topic. Uh, scripture just comes around and says, this, this is something that breaks the heart of God. And it's a part of a culture's journey away from God. It's one of the steps along the pathway. And, and guys, it, it's, it's not a cultural decision. It's not about um, how somebody was born or what someone thinks is appropriate. Scripture says this is, a, this is a phase. This is a part of the process of pushing uh, God away and not allowing Him uh, in our lives. And I know, I know there'll be some in the room that go, hey, wait a minute, I've got a dear friend, and they're, they're a great person, and they, and they even are a Christian, and yet they have this lifestyle, and they would tell you that from the time they were a child, they were, that this is something that's always been going on in their lives. You realize every one of us has struggle. And anybody in here not have a favorite sin? Because I've got about five. Any, anybody not? Any, anybody in this room not have a place of temptation, whether that's pride or arrogance or lust or… I mean, we've all got it, right? We've all got whatever we struggle with, and just because what you struggle with is different than what I struggle with doesn't mean that it's okay or that it's right or that I should say to you, well, hey, I mean, if, if you're just prideful, then be prideful. I mean, yeah, I guess that's how God created you was prideful. The reality is we all have the place in our lives in which we struggle. And every single person who decides to follow Jesus Christ has to bring those places of our life into obedience to Scripture. We have to come to God and say, God, look, I'm going to bring this bent of my life, this brokenness of my life, and I'm going to bring it into obedience to you. I, I guarantee you, every one of you in this room has had to live with that moment. There's men who've had to say, man, I'm going to bring my lust, and I'm going to bring it into the subjection of Jesus Christ. There are people in here who've said, I've, had to, I've got to bring my greed, because I'm just telling you, I think I was born greedy, and so I've got to bring my greed in subjection to Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter that that's what your particular flavor of sin is. What matters is, is that all of us are called to bring our lives into obedience to Jesus Christ and to obey what Scripture says for us. Questions? I know there's bound to be questions on that one. No? You're going to make that one easy? Shame and knee. All right, we've got one here. 
Yep. It's getting harder and harder in uh, this culture to to stand up against homosexuality. Sure. Especially when they're they're so adamant about hey, I was born this way. I didn't have mm -hmm. any choice. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I don't know if the guys are... All right, all right. Women. Women. How many women in this room say, I think I was born to shop? I, I think that's just how God made I was born to shop. <laughs> now, now, ladies, don't you have to bring that under the subjection of Jesus Christ? Right? Okay? At some point. I, I guarantee, and I, I would do this, I just think the men wouldn't all be honest. I guarantee if I said, all right, how many of you men are good lusters? I, you know, we, all of us should probably raise our hand together. Uh, how many of us admire the form of the female body? Uh, most of us would say yes. Even if you want to, first off, here, here's what I'm going to say. Man. All right, so give me, a, give, me a, give me a moment of grace on this one because I'm about to make a statement that is mostly true but is not always true, okay? I'm going to say that again. I'm about to make a statement that is mostly true. It is not always true, okay? And that is this that the vast majority of time when you run into somebody who is struggling with homosexuality in, your, in their lives, you will almost always hear a story of pain. You will almost always hear a story of pain, which then causes me then to process and go, well, wait, 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 wait. Is this really how you were born? Or is this how you've been wounded? Is this, is this a desperate attempt, is this a desperate reach to find some joy, to find some peace and happiness in your life that up until now you felt deprived of? And even if you were born that way, I mean, even if you want to play that card, and I'm okay, because I think the alcoholic could say, well, I was, I was born attracted to alcohol. You know, my body just really processes it better than other people's. You know, I just, that's just who I am. It doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter to me because someone could say, well, I was, born, I was born violent, so that's why I beat people. I don't care if you were born that way. Whatever, every one of us in this room, every one of us in this room has brokenness. When, when Adam sinned in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, when Adam sins, something is ripped. Something is forever bent within this thing that is called human. See, that perfect image of God that was in us was scarred in that moment. And every human, every son and daughter of Adam has been born with that bent. Uh, theologians call it the sin nature. It's what makes every one of us intuitively selfish. It's what makes every one of us want to get our own way. It's what makes every one of us think we're smarter than God, and we have to learn that we're not. And every one of us has an attraction to sin. It's now just a matter of flavor. Some of us like to lie. You ever met a pathological liar? Yeah. And they, they'd say, well, I was just born this way. I, I just, this is what I do. And some of us lust, and some of us steal. And I don't care what your bent was. I don't, I don't care what that scar that shows up in your life that is that sinful part of your nature that causes you to constantly war with God. I don't care what the flavor is. What I care is, is that every last one of us, despite the flavor, has to bring that area of our life into obedience and subjection to Jesus Christ. That's part of this journey. It's part of what you do as a Christian. So I'm okay. I'm okay if that's, if that's the bend. But you've got, to, you've got to bring it and say, God, look, I, I get that this is out of obedience. How, how many men in the room, all right, so let me, let me just ask this. Maybe this will help the men. How many men in the room are thrilled with the passage when Jesus said, if you even look at a woman to lust, you've committed adultery in your heart already? How many men go, man, I love that passage in Scripture? That's my favorite passage. Why? Because we have to bring that into subjection, right? We have to come and say, hey, before Christ, you know, when, I, when that… When that gal comes walking by and she's not wearing anything, I got to look at ceiling tiles and count holes and the thing. I mean, that's what I got to do because I'm bringing that part of my life into subjection to Jesus Christ. Every one of us has this challenge. All we're talking now is flavor. 
If, if you go the other direction, guys, I'm just going to toss this out. If you go the other direction and say, hey, if you're born that way, then you're not accountable for it. Then you realize every child molester gets a pass. Because every child molester can say, I was just born attracted to children. Every drug addict gets a pass. Because they say, I was just born with this need to have artificial stimulant in my body. Every murderer gets a pass because they can say, I was just born violent. I don't care how you were born. We were all born broken. And all of us have to bring our brokenness to the cross. Now we're only arguing flavors. And the flavor honestly doesn't matter. Just that you bring it to the cross. Yeah, questions? Yeah. I would love to hear your thoughts on the uh, Kentucky clerk of court who refused to issue marriage certificates to homosexuals. Yeah, you know, I, this, is, this is honestly, so the question was, what do I think about the, the clerk, clerk who refused to issue, you know, the marriage uh, certificate to the two gentlemen that came in and, and wanted to be married? This is going to be a, a, a constant challenge for us now, I think, as Christ followers, as we try to live out the convictions of our heart um, and, and our belief system in a culture that I think has done an amazing job of trying to change this issue into a constitutional uh, conversation or a human rights conversation. Uh, I don't, you know, it, it's hard for me. I, I don't know the perfect answer for that because on the one side, she was employed by them and knew that this day was coming, right? The moment that court verdict went through, she knew the day would come that she would have two gentlemen or two women walk up and say, we want a marriage certificate. And so then the million dollar question becomes as a Christian, do I, because I know that moment's coming, do I stay there and then live that moment kind of in civil disobedience and to make a statement about where I am, is that the best way to glorify God? Which I'm hesitant to go there because Romans 13 we're gonna get to says, obey the authorities that are over you, right? Or do I resign my job? Do I say to them, hey guys, I get it. This is your new law. Uh, I can't carry out this job anymore because you've now put me as a Christ follower in a position that I can't, I can't do that in good conscience toward God. And so I'm gonna resign my job. I'm gonna go find a different job because I don't wanna be in civil disobedience. And uh, I think this is gonna be the challenge for Christians as we go and do this. I can tell you honestly as a pastor, because this verse is here, and guys, I'm just gonna, guys, those verses are not ambiguous, right? Those verses say, men begin to do things that God never intended men to do. And even the women began to do things that God never intended women to do. And so I can just tell you as a pastor that if I had a couple who came to me and said, I want you to marry us, we, I, I, there's no one on your staff who wouldn't, would hesitate for a second to say, no, I won't do that. I, I, as a Christ follower, I can't. But I'm not under civil obedience, and I don't, you know, no one, I, I don't have government paying me to do my job. So, again, but I, I think as Christians, you and I are going to get challenged all over the place on this. Here's, here's the other part that I want us to be really, really careful in this moment. I don't think it's our job to stand against homosexuals. I don't think that's our job. I think it is our job to say, this lifestyle will never get you what you're hoping for. If you keep living this way, you will only find disappointment and heartache and sadness. Because in, in, look, when God made the rules, you realize he didn't do that capriciously, right? He didn't make the rules just so we could go, oh, there's another one. Let's make them jump through that hoop. You know, let's, let's make it a little hard on them over here. You realize that every rule, if you want to call that in Scripture, was always intended for your blessing. There's not one thing that God commands in Scripture that isn't ultimately intended to be good for you and bless you in your life by being obedient to it. When he says don't lie, it's because God knows the power of somebody with integrity. When he says don't murder, right, he didn't want us to live in a culture or civilization that was chaotic with people just killing each other. Industry. Every rule was there to bless us. And when you get to this command in Scripture that says, hey, wait, don't be involved in this lifestyle, it's not because God is going, oh, that's just so weird. That's not why. It's because God said, you will never find what you're looking for 
in that lifestyle. You will never feel the joy and the peace and the happiness you want in that lifestyle. And I think that's got to be the thing that we say as we encounter people who are struggling in this area of their lives. It's, I don't think it's about standing against them. I don't think it's about beating them up and telling them they're sinful because, dude, I'm sinful. We're all sinful, right? I think, I think it's helping them understand you, what you're looking for, you will never get. Maybe this will help. If you had somebody in your family who was on drugs and they said to you, I just want you to accept that drugs are what make me happy and, and drugs are what bring me fulfillment and, and I just want you to accept my lifestyle of being drug addicted. If you really loved them, would you ever accept that lifestyle? No, because here's what you know. You know that lifestyle will never lead them to the happiness they're so desperately trying. You know that that lifestyle has a dead end for them. You know that. So the most loving thing to do in that moment is say, I can't possibly accept that. I will not support that. I will, matter of fact, I'll do everything I can to rescue you from a lifestyle of using drugs because I know where it ends. That's what God is saying here. Please don't go down that road. Please don't go down that road. Please don't go down there because you will never find. And just like the person who's on drugs who says, oh, no, wait a minute. You don't understand. I feel so good when I do it, and it makes me so happy when I'm high. And you and I would say whatever benefit you think you're getting is only temporary. It will not last. And it's exactly what I think we have to say to people who are struggling in any area of sin but especially in this one to say, whatever happiness you think you're experiencing right now, God has already said, you will not find it there. And the other part, guys, I mean, just to be allowed, if God says don't do something, if God says don't do something and you do it, what happens next? Anybody know? Grab your Bibles. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 5. Here's what it says. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 says, Have you forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons? My son, do not make light the Lord's what? Discipline. When do you get disciplined? When you do what you're not supposed to be doing. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone that he accepts as a son. Uh, go with me to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. You can't run an end around. You can't fool God. You can't get away with something. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. And the one who sows to please the Spirit, the Spirit will reap eternal life. When, when you choose to willingly be disobedient to God, you are setting yourself up for a spanking. I mean, you are literally saying, na 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 to God. It's the craziest thing you can possibly do. When, when you and I as a Christian sit in church on Sunday and we open the Word of God and you see something there and know your life doesn't line up and you go, ah, I don't like that, I'm not going to do that. When you, you realize you set yourself up for discipline. You are literally saying to God, I dare you to spank me. And that's why if you and I care about those who, no matter what the issue is that they're living in disobedience to Scripture, it's not about being right, and it's not about proving to them that they're wrong. It's about saying to them, hey, if you keep living that lifestyle, if you keep making that decision, you realize you set yourself in a position where God has to discipline. God has to spank that action. If you keep lying, if you keep stealing, if you keep looking at pornography, you realize you set yourself up for God to have to spank you. And if you and I love them, 
then we have to speak truth to them, no matter how unpopular the truth is. All right, let me give you, let me give you one last example, see if this helps. Because I know, I know, we're, it's, it's hard. If you, were, if you were in a cruise ship and you were sailing the Atlantic and you just happened to see a guy swimming and he says, I'm going to swim the Atlantic. I'm swimming from here to the English coast. What are the chances that he makes it? Zero. Zero. But he's enthused. He's done really well for the first 13 miles. He's confident as all get out he's going to make it. If you love him in any level, if you just even have human concern for him, what would you say to him? Get in the boat. Exactly. You say, look, look, I know how enthusiastic you are. I know how committed to this venture you are, but this venture ends in death. Get out of the water. Get in the boat. I know you don't want to hear that, but that's the truth which is why you and I as followers of Christ, when we come to passages like this that the culture is not too thrilled about, if we have any level of human compassion, let alone Christ's compassion, you and I have to say to people who are swimming in the ocean and doing things that God has already said, you will never be happy, you will never find life, you will never, you'll never get what you're trying for. If you and I have any concern for them, we have to have enough character to say, get out of the water, get in the boat, the most unloving thing you could do for that guy is go, dude, how cool, man. You know what? I'm not going to judge you. No, go for it. Keep swimming. See you in England. Burn. Sail off in your boat, right? And yet that's what we're being told is the most loving thing to do in our culture is say, hey, no, I'm rooting for you. I'm not going to judge you. Keep it up. If you and I know that people are swimming to their death and we say nothing, then that's unloving. And if you and I know that someone is living in disobedience to Scripture, and we know that they'll never find the happiness they're looking for, we know they're setting themselves up for the discipline of God. I'm not asking us to go wave picket signs somewhere. I'm not asking us to go beat anybody up, and I don't even want to have an argument with you. I just need to say, what you're looking for, you'll never find. What you're hoping for is not at the end of this path. Please get out of the water and get in the boat. Yeah. If you're um, approached in a workplace whoa, whoa. setting. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And, and I, for a second, I thought God was correcting something I had said, so I was like, whoa, Nellie. I didn't, yeah. And, and asked um, how you feel about homosexual marriage. Uh, again, in a workplace setting, do you have any suggestions? on how to respond to that because it's, it's obviously a loaded issue. Sure. I, you know, again, guys, I don't, I don't think this is about winning argument. I, I'm, I'm as political as, as the next guy, intuitively. I mean, I like politics. But can I just tell you, I, I don't get all freaked out and going on politics because at the end of the day, the hope for this nation is not who we elect for president next time. It's just not. Now, let me tell you something. I've got very strong opinions about the fact that the person that's going to get my vote is going to be the person whose values are closest to Scripture, okay? And, um, and that's just period. That's just period. And, and so that's how my vote gets decided. I I'm going to vote for whatever politicians' values most clearly mirror the priorities of Scripture. And, you know, sometime we can talk about that. But, um, but here's what you just need to know. That's not where my hope is. My hope is not in winning an election or winning, you know. It, it's just not. The hope is that people would come to know our Jesus. Because when people come to know our Jesus, their lives and their hearts are changed. And if we want our country to be different, then we need to start from the inside out, not the outside in. Uh, look how successful prohibition was. We passed a law of morality that did not reflect the culture. You, you can't legislate. How, how effective has civil rights been? We're sitting now, what, 50 years, 60 years later, and we're still struggling with it, but we passed dozens of laws. Because you don't change a person with a law. 
you change them from the heart. And only Christ can do that. So our hope is, is that people come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's what's going to change our culture. It's what's going to change our world. So back to your question. I, I'm not interested in an argument. And so personally, if someone comes to me and does that, I'm going to defer that as best I can. I'm probably going to say something along the lines that says, you know, I'm a Christ follower. And the Bible's pretty clear that that type of relationship is outside of Scripture. It's something that Scripture does not condone. And I just leave it. I'm not, I don't need to change your mind about it. You probably don't know my Jesus yet. That's a total subtopic to whether or not you accept Jesus as your Savior. Once Jesus is your Savior, then you can go to the mind and we'll talk about it. Okay? So, I, I just, you know, it's just not even worth the debate for me. So, again, this isn't about winning an argument. This is about loving the people who are struggling in this particular area of their life enough to speak truth to them and to encourage them to say, look, you're, just, you're not going to find what you want going that way. All right, so we're in the back, yeah. Yeah, so I just wanted to uh, add to your boat example, right? So the, the piece to me is that um, if they're not ready to get into the boat and be saved then, I'm mm -hmm. not going to row away, right? You have to keep loving on them. I don't have to cheer them on and say, right. I believe your lifestyle, your sin, your greed, your wasting of money, right? Because sin is sin. Sure. Right after this, there's a laundry list of, you know, a whole ton of other things that are considered sin. Right. But I'm not going to walk away either. It's, hey, if you're going to live that lifestyle, here's my stance, here's my view, and here's why. But I'm not going to row the boat away. Right. I'm here when you need someone to come to, to talk to about what that sin is after God and Jesus are working on your heart to leave that sin behind. I'm here with the rowboat waiting for you, yeah. I'm not too far away. And I think that's a piece that gets missed a lot is, nope, see ya, have a nice day. Yeah. You're not willing to jump up and be saved today. So here, I'm gonna give you a real quick illustration on this real quick um, that I'm just gonna forewarn you is probably gonna show up in a sermon so then you can't say, oh, I heard this before. All right, so um, I can't be the guy in the cruise ship that says, hey, that's great, have a margarita, you know, keep swimming for England. I can't do that. I'm going to argue that that is horribly unloving if I as a Christian especially know that this lifestyle is going to lead them to, to hurt and disappointment and struggle with God. I don't think you and I as Christians want to be the other type of boat either. So that was a cruise ship. I don't think we want to be the destroyer. I don't think we want to be the guy coming in or the gal coming in with guns blazing and you realize you're going to hell and how dare you live that lifestyle. And all we're doing is trying to win an argument. Because at the end of the day, destroyers are built for one thing. That's to destroy. And you'll destroy relationship. You'll destroy any opportunity in that person's life to ever be an influence to them. And I think the, the position that you and I as Christians have to take in a culture that's as dark as the culture we're in is that you and I have to be a Coast Guard. And if you ever look at a Coast Guard ship, there's a couple little guns on there. You know, so if they have to, they can kind of defend themselves type thing. Uh, but you realize the primary mission of a Coast Guard ship, search and rescue. Search and rescue. And they would be thrilled to never open up the guns if they didn't have to, right? Search and rescue. And I believe that's your and my role in culture, is to search and rescue. So to your point, I want to find those who are in the water, and I want to do my very best to invite them in the boat. That's, that's what I'm going to do, as much as I can, and as often as I can. Yeah. We're good? We're happy? All right, one more. All right. Check, check. Oh, there you go. There we go. Hey, um, I just want to get your take on kind of, as we talked about earlier, you know, human beings advancing in our knowledge and uh, especially with technology, advancing as it is and allowing us to see, you know, the minute details of the human body and, and everything that goes on inside. Um, this is coming around to, you know, the topic of homosexuality, but as we're, we're able to advance in technology and see these things happen, whether it's um, additional X chromosomes in boys or whatever mm -hmm. it is that uh, scientists have been able to, to find out, um, and I don't necessarily know if that's the causality of them being more feminine um, or not, but um, I, I may be the only one in this room, but I feel like I've had some family members that were born in certain ways that um, were just counter, I guess, to what we're talking about here. 
mm -hmm. um, and, and in fact that you know it was there was loving environments there were people who you know fathers who wanted everything from the sports aspect of the son and uh, there was no hate as far as what I saw in, in the right. family so um, you, you you've seen individuals that that as best you can diagnose there was probably there was a bent from birth in that direction yeah, versus in, environment in that direction you know versus the environment being you know whatever it is and and I feel like from visual on my standpoint that they were born with this uh, opposite of what I was born with mm -hmm. and um, and you know they turn out as an adult now to be homosexual so um, I feel like you know it wasn't uh, and how much of that is design how much are we gonna see in technology that is created through design um, and where does our Christian faith intersect with that. Sure. So, so here will be the real quick pass on a little bit of that. I don't want to take too much time on it because we probably talked about this enough and then I'll, I'll meet you or anyone else wants to talk more in the front. Where are we at on time? How much time do we have? Wrap it up. Okay, got to wrap it up. All right, so let me just, we'll finish with this then. When, when you talk about scientific advancement and now they're looking, they're saying, hey, we think we see uh, within the brain this part of the lobe is a little bit uh, larger uh, in people that are homosexual than versus people who aren't homosexual, you realize that there is that there's no consistency there. In other words, it's, hey, once in a while we see this, but we don't always see it, and, you know, so there's, there's nothing there that is truly scientific. There isn't. There, there's still speculation at this point. But even if they get to the point, I mean, even if they can narrow it down and say, hey, here's this gene, and this is what's going on, and that's why a person's predisposed, at the end of the day, there is no gene that makes you exempt from God's moral law. Period. You know, it, it, there isn't. If God says don't lie, and if all of a sudden they discover a liar's gene, it does not make you exempt and say lying's okay. Uh, if you're a luster and they decide there's a lusting gene, it doesn't make you exempt from the Scripture that says, do not lust. It, it, I don't care, you know. You know, here's, here's the truth of it. You don't even need to find a gene. The testosterone that's in every single man in this room or the vast majority of men in this room drives us to be highly sexual by nature. It does not exempt us from obeying God's laws about sex. It doesn't. It, God's laws are God's laws. It doesn't matter how you're physically disposed. It just doesn't. God, moral law is moral law. Truth is truth no matter what, even if it's hard to follow. It's still truth. And so… I'm okay, and even if science gets to the point where they say, hey, this is, we've discovered this, it doesn't change that. And when this says, do not commit adultery, I don't care if they find an adultery gene. I don't care. You know, right now, one of the things they're saying, because they believe in evolution, is they're saying, hey, men, men were never built to be monogamous. Men need to go and spread their seed everywhere they can spread their seed, and they have to have as many offspring as they can possibly have to make sure that the, they're, uh, you know, have a, a progeny uh, afterwards. I don't care what you say. It doesn't matter. Jesus said, do not commit adultery. God's law is God's law. There is nothing that can be born in you that precludes you from obeying Scripture, period. You know, Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, take up your cross. What's the next phrase? Deny yourself. Because Jesus knew there would always be parts of us that had no desire to do what Jesus wanted us to do. And that if you were going to be a Christ follower, you would end up denying some of your natural bents and inclinations. Take up your cross, deny yourself, and then follow me. And guys, if you, think, if you think this following Jesus is just doing what all the, whatever comes natural and only doing what's easy in your life, then you've hopped on the wrong boat. Because this following Jesus is the hardest thing you will ever do in your life. And you will spend a lot of time bringing into subjections parts of your life that you never intended to bring in subjection. 
And once you bring that part of your life into subjection, the Holy Spirit's going to reveal something else you're doing wrong, and you're going to go, oh, crud, something else? You're kidding me. You mean I've been using that word for 33 years, and I can't use that word anymore? What are you talking about, Jesus? I'm just telling you guys, if, if you think this is, this is a road of convenience and, and, and what, it's not. There's not one person who's ever followed Jesus Christ who has not laid down their life. What did, what did Paul say? I die daily to what, I, what my body wants to do, what my old nature wants to do. I die to myself every day to try to follow my Jesus. And if you're serious about this, you'll die every day too. This isn't about what you feel inclined to do. This is what Jesus asked you to do. It's a hard road. It's a narrow road. And there's only a few who really travel it. Let's pray. Thank you, guys. Great questions. I love the questions. Good deal. Let's pray. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, thank you for tonight. Thank you, thank you for Scripture that rubs us the wrong way sometimes and challenges how we're thinking. And God, that's okay, because at the end of the day, we want to discover your plan, and we want to be true to your word. And so it's okay if you bother us a little bit. It's okay if you bump up against us. God, I pray for everybody in this room, uh, for the people who wanted to stand up tonight and cheer and say, wow, that's really, really great uh, that you talked about that topic finally, that they wouldn't walk out of here like a battleship and try to go shoot at somebody. Uh, who's struggling in this area of their lives. God, that would, that would not be Jesus. And God, I pray for some of us in this room who are struggling and saying, man, wait a minute, that just feels so narrow. It feels judgmental to tell somebody that they, they can't live in a lifestyle that they feel so inclined to. God, help us to realize that you loved us so much that you were willing to say that lifestyle will never bring you happiness. That lifestyle will never fulfill your life. And I love you enough that if you do that, I'll spank you because I'm not going to let you play in the street. God, help us to be students of the Word and to learn your Word thoroughly. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thank you, guys. All right. I'll stay up at the front. I'll talk to anybody who's got questions.